0: Technically speaking, using containers and Kubernetes can improve your security, but it requires making adjustments to how you manage security. My security team just has had a tendency to talk in terms of thou shalt, here are the requirements, and they haven't needed to understand the how for so long that in some cases, and I love my security colleagues, but in some cases, on some teams, security folks know what, but they no longer remember the why behind the policy.
1: Hi there. Welcome to the Kubernetes Security Month. Last year, we spoke a lot about Kubernetes security being one of the fastest growing space in the cloud native industry, I guess, or sub-industry, if you want to call it. But what we didn't cover is how much it has evolved since the last time we spoke about it. And I think it had about 70% or 80% growth overall in just one year in the adoption. And turns out the adoption hasn't really slowed down in 2023 so far. As well. We are media partners for KubeCon EU. And as part of that, we had a few conversations. And one of those person is Christian Newcomer. Christian and I spoke about how the evolution of Kubernetes security has changed the way a lot of people have looked at security in the cloud native landscape, what it has meant for zero trust, what it has meant for supply chain security, what does it really mean for security people to change their perspective on how security needs to be done in Kubernetes context. We also shared some examples. So if you have never heard of any of these terms, or we just want to understand how Kubernetes security works in general, we definitely have you covered in this episode. If you know someone who's trying to learn about Kubernetes security, or is someone looking at just the overall picture of how do I think about Kubernetes security in 2023, if I should learn that or not, then this is the episode for you. We spoke about a wide variety of Kubernetes security topics and what to look out for in 2023. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, if you know someone else who is interested in learning about Kubernetes security, definitely share this episode with them. We will be talking more about Kubernetes in the whole month of April 2023 for Kubernetes security as we go and attend KubeCon EU as well, as we bring you insights from the KubeCon conference. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you're here for the second or third time, I would really appreciate if you drop us a review and rating if you are listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, or if you're watching this on our YouTube channel or LinkedIn, definitely give us a follow, subscribe, and hit the bell icon if you're not already doing it, so you get notified when the next episode is out. We talk about cloud security every day and all week. We're also running something called a Cloud Security Bootcamp, which is a free bootcamp, which you can find on our YouTube channel. Definitely check that out, and if you have any questions, definitely drop them as a comment. Enjoy this conversation about evolution of Kubernetes security with Kirsten, newcomer, and I will see you in the next episode of Kubernetes security. Peace.
0: Hope you're enjoying the episode so far. A quick word from our sponsor, Sneak, who are having a special event, Sneak Launch, on April 4th, 2023. They're going to be talking about how to deploy and develop securely in the cloud. And you can register for this free on their website, sneak.io slash events slash Sneak Launch. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, Kirsten, Hello. how are you? I'm good. How are you, Ashish? Great.
1: Great. Uh, first of all, I think for people who do not know who Kirsten is, could you share a bit about yourself and how you got into the whole Kubernetes space?
0: Sure. So Kirsten Newcomer, I'm currently at Red Hat as Director of Security Product Management, responsible for security capabilities across our Kubernetes-based platform, OpenShift, I've been in the software field for longer than I generally admit to. Um, So (laughs) I, I started as a system admin, I've done quality engineering, I've managed a release engineering team, moved into program management and product management from there, which I've been doing product management for, gosh, probably about 20 years or so at this point, and have kind of, you know, had the opportunity throughout my career really to be thinking about security capabilities. I've been working largely with enterprise customers throughout that time and and they have strong security needs. So I've kind of had a chance to think from dev to ops and how security plays in all those spaces.
1: Well, it's a good segue into my next question as well about the security needs for most organizations as well. Being Kubernetes Month and talking about Kubernetes security, because we have KubeCon EU coming up soon as well, the Intent behind Kubernetes has gone way beyond than the first version of Google when it came out. How do you see the Kubernetes security market today? Like I think last year a lot of conversations were focused around the, all the default misconfigurations and oh we want to use it, but I mean you know there's a there's a lot of mixed information about Kubernetes security last year. I'm curious how do you see Kubernetes security in 2023 and how has it evolved?
0: Yeah, I think you're right to say it's mixed. There's been a a really strong evolution. Kind of early on, Kubernetes didn't even include role based access control. But as containers became more and more popular, organizations knew they needed orchestration. Over time, Kubernetes sort of won the container orchestration wars. And as that happened, Right, More and more enterprises adopted it, and the need for security became stronger within the community, right? So more advocates for security capabilities in Kubernetes, even within the community, which has been terrific. And then in 2019, in particular, the CNCF open sourced a Kubernetes security audit, which was great to see that investment, and I think brought a lot of attention to within the community to thinking about how do we address these? And it wasn't so much about vulnerabilities. Those folks are used to thinking about and managing and addressing. It was more the broader platform and kind of thinking about the threat vectors and how do we protect against those? And then separately, you asked about sort of security. We move beyond the core platform because there are capabilities within the platform itself to secure the environment and the workloads running on the environment, but also very early on, while the orchestration wars were still sort of happening, you really saw an explosion of startups who moved into container security and then Kubernetes security because traditional security tools really weren't designed for managing the Kubernetes environment. And so that happened for a long time. And now in the last year or so, I think we're starting to see people thinking about as people have moved many workloads into the cloud, now it's not just container and Kubernetes security, it's, okay, how does that play with my broader cloud security environment as well? So, so it's been an interesting evolution.
1: Do you feel like Kubernetes is still quite popular? I think last year uh, or was maybe before that it was like 80% growth or something. Is yeah, that still I, the yeah. case?
0: It, yeah, I do. Absolutely. It's still very popular and, you know, huge growth, huge adoption, new solutions being built on top of Kubernetes regularly. That said, I think where a lot of the community is investing right now, like the core platform is really in good shape. It's the capabilities on top of the platform where a lot of investment is happening. Things like Knative for serverless and Istio for Service Mesh, Backstage for developers, sort of a whole range of community projects that are you know, designed to make it even easier to work with and use Kubernetes.
1: I mean, maybe even outside the technical aspect of it, what's keeping Kubernetes so popular? You know, I would have thought with the managed Kubernetes service that came from cloud providers. And one would think that, okay, it should just blend into what you said as well. People are looking at the broader, how does Kubernetes fit into my cloud security landscape? What's the non-technical reason for this popularity as well? Mm. Is there one?
0: I would have to say when it comes to non-technical, I'm gonna fall back on open source as kind of the key driver for popularity projects that really have a strong open source community or technical solutions that have a strong open source community, the opportunity to innovate and thrive in ways that are harder to, at scale, in ways that are harder to achieve when they're not open source. So I think that that was partly why Kube itself won the orchestration wars and why so many people are building upon it. It's just a very vibrant community. And there is that you know, there's there's that opportunity to influence whether you're an individual contributor, whether you're working at a company that's using Kubernetes, and and therefore that's why you're engaged. It's become a skill set also that is transferable because it is so popular, right? Just, I, I think open source makes a big difference.
1: I think open source is, all, I almost feel like it's two sets of the same coin where on one side, people are really forthcoming about open source and the other side they're almost the first word that kind of comes to their mind is supply chain <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> I don't mean it in the context that I don't believe in it I totally am an open source yeah. supporter but I, I think maybe this is what makes security in the community space a bit more challenging as well because I guess I'm curious how widespread is the usage like in what kind of industries have you seen Kubernetes where one would not think Kubernetes would be ah. used because a lot of people still yeah maybe have a bias like I do, where maybe only tech companies use it, or is it yeah. only the case?
0: No, I've seen it in in tons of verticals. It's in financial, it's in telecommunications. A lot of 5G networks, the core computing, are built on Kubernetes. It's expanding into radio access networks. There's Kubernetes at the edge. I see it in transportation. Organizations are building their solutions for managing, you know, when you're tracking your package delivery, right? A lot of those solutions are built on Kubernetes, delivered on Kube. Also, if I need to do the logistics for all of my, you know, what's the best way to distribute my packages, given all the places they're going, I see it in automotive, simulating connected car communications, pretty much anywhere there is software, air, the hospitality industry, airlines, I'm sure I'm going to forget something. It is pretty much everywhere I look.
1: I think someone even mentioned it's being used in submarines as well.
0: Yep, no doubt. It is. Yeah, absolutely. This you could probably like,
1: wait, yeah, submarine yeah. uses Kubernetes containers. On the, and...
0: It's on the space station.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cool stuff.
1: Oh, wow. I mean, maybe no wonder that attracts a lot of people as well. They want to work on cool stuff rather than whatever the cloud (laughs) is offering, I guess. But maybe another way to look at this is because to what you called out, if it's so widely used across multiple verticals and security has, I I won't say hasn't embraced it. I would definitely say it looks at Kubernetes as another challenge because Mm -hmm. the way it was described last year was, oh, Kubernetes is a data center within a data center. It's people finding another way to escape security. Like what are some of the challenges in securing a Kubernetes container out of curiosity the way you see it? Maybe, and we can focus on, I guess, the soft part or the the technical part, however you want to feel fit.
0: Sure. I think technically speaking, using containers and Kubernetes can improve your security, but it requires making adjustments to how you manage security. And I think some of the reasons for the skepticism is that we still have a split, like, it's not just about technology to your point about the soft points, right? People and process matters too. And in some ways, you know, the explosion of containers and Kube into the tech world and the enterprise use kind of parallels what happened when virtual machines were first introduced and everybody had to sort of scramble to wrap their brains around this new technology. And what does it mean to, from the security perspective, right? How do I, tackle that and it, the reality is that the principles the same security principles apply that same concept of you know ensuring that principle of least privilege is followed that you want to manage authentication and authorization integrity matters you know network security matters running of privileged workloads all of those principles are still the same how you implement them is different And many organizations over the years, they've developed structures of especially enterprise organizations, right? If I'm not a small, maybe cloud native tech company, I've got my app dev team, I've got my ops team, and I've got my security team. And my security team just has had a tendency to talk in terms of thou shalt, here are the requirements. And they haven't needed to understand the how for so long that in some cases, and I love my security colleagues, but in some cases, on some teams, security folks know what, but they no longer remember the why behind the policy. And in order to make this shift, because the technology is different, you need different tools. You know, you can't just do perimeter based security applications, don't have static IP addresses in this world. So I need to know the why so that I can think through how to do this in a new environment and have a conversation. And and while we've been talking as an industry for a long time about DevSecOps, it's still not quite there, right? DevOps is more present, DevSecOps, not as much. and And so really... And then you add in that a lot of organizations, especially during the pandemic, they started accelerating their move to cloud. And now I'm adding in kind of two layers of a sense of loss of control, right? So it's a new environment, a new technology that maybe I'm not as familiar with. How do I help my team meet the goals when I'm not as familiar? And they're moving into the cloud where I don't have as much control. It's a shared responsibility model. So it takes, it takes time for people to adjust. And honestly, it's gonna happen the business, I, the business, I think, are driving the push in both cases. The businesses get agility. They get faster time to delivery. The developers love it. Security matters and supply chain security matters. I want to circle back to why that's particularly important for Kube. But you have to figure out how do I bring all of these teams together to make this happen? And that requires some change in culture. And that's sometimes the hardest thing. I
1: love that also because I don't think... Yeah we were successful in doing DevSecOps for a long time. And now we have to do DevSecOps in cloud. We have to do DevSecOps in cube as well. Yeah. What Because you know how you mentioned that the whole static IP address does not exist. I loved it also because it opens another, I guess, appeals another layer for this conversation, which is what are some of the things that we have to unlearn as people who may have had a lot of experience in security, yeah. know exactly the fundamentals, know the principles, and to your point, maybe even know the why behind the policies. Yep. What are some things that people who may have not experienced it yet, what do yeah. they have to unlearn to work effectively in a cube environment?
0: One of the places I'd start, and it brings us back to supply chain security, is never patch a running container. So when you, if you're used to an environment where like we all want to apply, well, If you're in the security fields, you want to apply those patches as quickly as you can to address newly discovered vulnerabilities, but we're used to being able to step in a traditional environment. I can step into a running environment, apply a patch and move on, and maybe it takes you know a little bit longer for the app dev team to put that into their build process if i'm running a containerized application in kubernetes and this is one of the key reasons people like kubernetes i can scale up i can scale down i do this in a declarative fashion i've told kube i always want three instances of my web front end running at every time if one of those goes down for some reason what's going to happen is Kubernetes is going to notice and it's going to deploy a new instance from the image. So if you patched that running instance, there's no guarantee that that patch is going to be stable, that, that it's going to like be there for a long time. You need to rebuild the container image with that patch built into it and then redeploy. And this is one of the reasons that DevOps and therefore DevSecOps become so important And so now I need to work with both my ops team and my app dev team in new ways and figure out how do I help them get this information early? It's part of the reason I think the conversation around shift left security has kind of been so much a part of uh, Kubernetes conversations. But I also, I'm not going to find everything by shifting left, right? New vulnerabilities show up every day. So I also need to have a communication process for when something new shows up, how do I inform the dev team, right? So from my dev, my SecOps environment, push it back to DevSec, but they're the ones who are going to rebuild and redeploy. It's my app dev team or my DevOps team. And again, back to that kind of sense of lack of control. One of the ways I've seen organizations adapt to this is by doing everything as code right? Deployments as code. So yeah, I got to improve my CICD process. I can't rely on manual stuff, but that whole approach to CICD, to managing my apps, that can be used for my platform too. That can be used to manage my deployment of Kubernetes itself. And when I'm doing everything as code, I get auditability, traceability, all sorts of really interesting things that I used to just think were ops related
1: right i'm so glad you mentioned iac as well i feel a lot of people get nervous with iac and i think mm-hmm. the more we talk about it at your point maybe it's a fear of lack of control as you kind of go down that mm-hmm. path how do i know what's being deployed how do i know what's being changed and the whole notion of using some kind of a git repository and all of that is still very foreign yep. in the security context so maybe that's where it comes from but do you find that people are open to the idea of iac like i think in fact maybe a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about using ISE to do security changes to firewalls and other things as well, because people are asking, hey, security product, I need APIs. Uh, Do you see that pattern emerging?
0: I do. And I think you're right that some people are nervous, but I think sort of another way to circle it on the people side of things, right, is security teams historically haven't needed to understand the tooling that app dev teams use, right? And here we're talking about, Infrastructure as code, security as code, policy as code. Now that does mean I have to kind of learn new tools and a new language. And I don't mean like YAML or maybe I have to learn that too, right? (sighs) But I have to learn source control tools, et cetera. But honestly, people have been doing infrastructure as code in many ways for quite some time. Terraform, Ansible, there's a lot of tools out there. So I think the really interesting part though, about where things are headed right now, especially since the solar winds attack, is that anytime you're doing things through a pipeline, you need to now focus and think differently about the security of your pipeline. The winds with infrastructure as code, security as code, I get auditability, I get traceability of who made what changes when, I get version control, I get you know, a whole different, nobody has to touch the running environment. Instead, I make the change here and I push it. But that also means I need to be thinking about the integrity of my pipeline and the integrity of the code. So this is where new projects like SIGStore become really interesting, right? Now I have a signing solution that is designed to be used in a pipeline and to be used with a source code repository or things like that, rather than signing solutions that get tied to enterprise CAs where you have to wait for manually for something, right? And Tekton, Kubernetes native pipelines, Argo CD, I now have more tools for validating integrity, Tekton chains, SIG store cosine, and tracking that all the way through. But I do have to, again, that's a new shift left for my security, including if you're doing you know, whatever type of security as code, whether that's firewall configuration, whatever it is, you want to be sure that when you're storing it as code, you know who touched it last and it hasn't been tampered with since it was last touched.
1: And yeah, I'm so glad we yeah. had to have this conversation because I think I definitely would love for people to open up to the idea of using yeah. a lot more IAC. And yeah. to your point, it probably comes with maturity and I feel a lot of organizations, especially traditional organizations, we kind of touched on the fact that telcos are using Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. I even heard someone say meat factories are using. Sure,
0: manufacturing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And to your point, in this context, a lot of people may be from those industries and think, well, IAC is not something I have to worry about because, I don't know, it's a meat factory, for lack of a better word, or lack of a better example. Where Definitely. do you find the conversation kind of go towards when people think managed cloud service provider solutions solve these problems for them where they don't have to think about ISE? Would you agree mm. that does or it doesn't? I, I have my own personal opinion, but I'm keen to know your side.
0: Well, no, no, and I'm interested. Can... Yeah, I'm interested in your opinion too. So I, I think that certainly the cloud provider is doing a certain amount of management. So if we stick with Kubernetes, right? If I'm using Kubernetes from a cloud provider, they're managing the control plane. And, and back to the 2019 CNCF kube security audit, one of the biggest challenges is managing Kubernetes is getting the deployment of all the kube components configured correctly in combination with how they work with the operating system and all the hardening you want at the host OS layer. And so if you're you know, using a kube distro from a cloud provider, they're gonna manage the control plane and they're gonna deploy the worker nodes for you, right? But your applications, in the end, a running container is a process on a host operating system. And so you still have a shared responsibility here. So you need to know that the configuration of that infrastructure meets your expectations for your security needs and those security needs vary depending on the different type of organization healthcare is another place where there's a, actually a lot of kubernetes and i care a lot about privacy of my data also so the infrastructure you know again if i'm using stateful apps which more and more organizations are i might have a database running on kubernetes that means i've got some attached storage So I still need to be thinking about how is that attached storage secured? How is the data managed? So it's kind of like, yep, the cloud provider is doing some things for you, but there's still this big layer of responsibility that you have to be thinking about.
1: So my opinion is very similar to what you just shared as well. And I also believe there's another limitation with the whole cluster management of, Mm -hmm. of, so you know how Kubernetes, the scale comes from, not just from the fact that you can scale up to have multiple nodes or multiple pods. It's also multiple clusters and how do you manage Mm -hmm. that across the board? A lot of examples of people I had conversations with, a lot of people use the cloud version for, I think it's like one cluster per application. I've seen that. Yeah. And I I don't know, I I don't think it's a, maybe it's the use case they have, but like, what do you see as a good pattern yeah. to be? Because I also feel there is two sides to the industry. One is, like, to your mm-hmm. point, they were born native. They've right. done the right thing from day one. They Some of them even made their own version of Kubernetes from the Google source code mm-hmm. and did a fork <laughs> and all of that. Yeah. And then they were the, I guess, for lack of a better word, they came in at stage two and they started adopting the well, versions from AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, mm-hmm. thinking Google Cloud would be the closest to... Mm-hmm. the core source, source yeah. code do you see the line between maturity of these organizations in terms of how would you describe for people who may be from one of those organizations on the right which are stage two what does a mature Kubernetes practice look like we don't mm-hmm. have to go like for large scale but I'm just curious from an example perspective where do you see the deployments to be more mature like what would be an example of it so that people who are working on one cluster and where mm-hmm. they have put every application in there, instead of a separate application as well. Where do you see as a, as a patterns for, mm-hmm. if you were to put this on a scale with maturity, least maturity being on the left and the most mature mm-hmm. being on the right, what are some of the examples of that?
0: Yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to answer it exactly the way you phrased it, so you can redirect me if needed. But yep. but I think you're absolutely right. I have seen, especially when organizations adopt Kube from a cloud provider, those Kubernetes distros are generally designed as single tenant systems. That's kind of if you care about security or management, you're going to be thinking about it that way. And to your point, if somebody's trying to get around, you know restrictions in an organization, They might get approval for, oh yeah, that app's okay because it's not as important to the business. You can go put that in the cloud. And so these individual teams kind of go do their own thing and have their own clusters. One of the real challenges though, is that each of those clusters has its own control plane and you start having your costs go up, right? You're, you know, instead of whereas an organization that's able To take advantage of a multi cluster environment, they can have one control plane with multiple different teams from their organization using that same cluster as long as they are doing the appropriate RBAC and micro segmentation with Kubernetes network policies. Typically, you need to understand more about how to secure, how to use Kubernetes to secure Kubernetes to do a multi cluster deployment. So when we circle back to your maturity, you're thinking around maturity in some ways, you really have to be more mature with Kubernetes to do the multi-cluster work. There's kind of another pattern too, right? So there can still be good reasons to have separate clusters. Maybe I have some apps that require PCI DSS compliance. And when it comes to auditors, they're still learning this environment as well too. I mean, they probably even understand it sometimes less than some others. So I might just have one cluster to minimize the scope of audit for my auditor, right? All my PCI DSS apps go there, but I'm still gonna need clusters also for application for data locality, right? I may have restrictions on where my data can reside, whether that's for California, for GDPR, whatever it is, I might need clusters in multiple regions. so even if I'm really good at multi-tenancy and I understand all of that, I may wind up with multiple Kube clusters, which means that now I have to start thinking about how do I apply security and governance across all of those clusters? And how do I do that in an auditable way and a manageable way at scale? And so I think when we really get mature, it's when, now organizations are investing in multi-cluster management solutions and multi-cluster security solution because they've got reasons for that legitimate, you know, governance reasons for that separation or had to have multiple clusters.
1: I'm glad you mentioned governance and compliance. I was <laughs> going to say, because we just spoke about telco, we spoke about fintech. Yeah. How does all of this play a role? Because I mean, when cloud came in, we already were struggling explaining auditors what cloud is. And now with Cube, do you feel auditors, obviously I appreciate the challenge that they have to keep updating mm. themselves in new technologies. Do you feel the current landscape at the moment is, I think it's such a popular technology. Yeah. They're also accepting, oh, wow, we have to do communities as well. Is there a lot yeah. more awareness of how people are, I guess, auditing Cube yeah. environments? Because one of the biggest challenges we had for cloud was, they just didn't understand how the cloud yeah. was so different yeah. to the traditional one. Is there similar challenges or is it better in cube world?
0: I think it's been evolving. And I think that back to the as code topic, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I think can make a real difference is, you know, managing compliance as code too, right? So solutions like OpenScap, Open. SCAP stands for Security Content Automation Protocol. It's a standard from NIST, National Institute for Security and Standards in the States. It works with formats that auditors do understand. So if you can, at minimum, automate compliance with technical controls using a solution like that, there are others out there. A lot of the container and coop security startups that they've been around for a while now, I have a hard time calling them startups, but automating Kubernetes compliance was a big part of where they focused. And Center for Internet Security has had the Kubernetes benchmark and the Docker benchmark. And so automating that compliance for technical controls and outputting a report in a human readable form helps the auditors a lot. And then there are organizations who really have, you know, who are focused in auditing, who've made it their business to understand this environment. So while it's still a concern, I think it's moved fairly quickly um, in terms of, you know, FedRAMP, PCI DSS, HIPAA. And I do get a lot of questions about it, but usually I don't, find that I personally need to talk to an auditor. It's more that I need to help the ops team understand how they're going to address it. And then they're able to talk with the auditor.
1: To your point about working with the auditors to, I guess, you know, make this change. I would imagine it's the same challenge working with security people as well for dev and ops. I think we spoke about DevSecOps just before. What's the easiest way for a lot of security people to transition into this new way of thinking? Because Kubernetes is popular, granted. There mm-hmm. is such complexity even in Kubernetes, yes, as humans are humans. We make something simple yeah. complex as well. We have <laughs> yeah. a cloud-managed version. Yeah. We have a unmanaged version. We have yep. a, I think we, I saw a Kubernetes Anywhere version as well. What's the best way to approach it? I guess that's where I'm, that's where I'm coming from. Because a lot of people mm. may hear this and go, oh, this is too complicated. I'm just going to reject it. What's the right. recommendation you share with people to how to approach Kubernetes security in an organization, especially when there has been a complexity in the implementation?
0: Yeah, conversation makes a big difference. Like when we were talking about DevSecOps earlier and kind of the need to break down pillars, I think it's a two-way thing. There was a trend I'm not hearing as much about four or five years ago about a BISO, this information security officer. I don't hear that term very much anymore. But embedding a security professional with an app dev team from the beginning is gonna make the difference. And also if you're a security professional and your business needs Kubernetes, again, it's kind of like we're in interesting times economically, right? You want your business to survive being agile, being able to move quickly, being able to deliver new functionality quickly, scale quickly, innovate is really important. So as a security person, it's professional, it's to your benefit to find a way to spend time with the app dev team, with the ops team, understand why they want Kubernetes, what's the benefit to the business. And then as a security professional, help them understand, um, because it's not really about yes or no, it's about business risk. So help the app dev team understand why you're asking them to do the things you ask them to do and ask them in the ops team to help you understand how we can meet those goals together. So even if you don't want to dive in and go learn Kubernetes, right, there's some great content out there. There's Kubernetes by example. There's a lot of tutorials, things that you can do to go get hands-on. But even if you don't have the time to go get hands-on, Go talk to your app dev team. Go talk to your line of business. You know, have some conversations that are two directional, right? Why mm-hmm. are they doing what they're doing? Why do they need it? And where are you coming from? What are your goals? Because you both want the business to succeed in yeah. the end. Yeah, yeah,
1: hundred percent. And I, I think you okay. touched on the right topic there with communication as well, because I think this is kind of where the DevSecOps piece started. Why us security people not talking to the developers in the first place, thinking we have all the solutions. And I granted, enterprise is different. Yeah. There's a process and everything to follow. Another topic that comes up quite often is the whole zero-trusting now being popular uh, yeah. as well. Where do you see that? I think a lot of people that I'm talking to so far, like we're only in March, and a lot of people have said, That zero trust is a high priority for them this year where does uh, zero trust play a role in kubernetes world
0: and this is another place actually where you know again there's some new terminology to learn but the concepts underneath it are still the same so when i think of zero trust right it's like start with denial Mm. and then open up only where you need to actually kubernetes can make that pretty straightforward you can start with zero users or one cluster admin, right? And then slowly, slowly add the users. And you can do that in an automated fashion because everything is API driven. You can similarly, it's a cluster, it's a collection of nodes or servers. You can segment that environment using Kubernetes network policies, which have been around for a while to ensure that. And you can start also with the cluster having no access, no external access to the cluster. You can open that up slowly. Kubernetes network policies are still a work in progress in some ways, and they're pretty complex to use, but they do give you micro segmentation and then finding solutions that help make recommendations for you. And there are tools emerging that help make better recommendations on your network policies, or even go in a layer above and using something like Istio to ensure that I'm doing, I'm encrypting pod-to-pod traffic by default, and I'm doing that layer seven security with something like Istio. So you can absolutely do zero trust networking. You can do the RBAC with zero trust. And Kube has really started expanding a lot of the networking functionality as well. But you do, You that's a place where so, identity, authorization, authentication, workload identity, we're starting to see more investment in workload identity. Solutions like Spiffy Inspire and how they connect to cloud workloads or cloud services, right? How do I connect my, my workload running on Kube to that cloud service? Integrity, we talked about SigStore earlier there's also quite some investment in the community in confidential computing and confidential containers and then attestation at the host operating system level and this is a place too where there's some advantages in cloud when it comes to confidential computing because you need attestation services different chipsets can have different attestation solutions And so when you're working with a cloud provider, they tend to have the attestation services that work with the hardware that they're supporting. So identity, integrity, isolation, again, isolation via networking, but also Linux solutions, secure computing profiles, sorry for geeking out on you, things like that, that actually are starting to be easier to put in place pod security admission, right? Making sure that I minimize the privilege of workloads, things like Caverno and OPA gatekeeper for admission control. It's just a ton of stuff out there, but it's kind of like the auditor question. It's like, how do I translate all of these capabilities and map them to how I'm trying to achieve zero trust? It's doable, but it's giving me a great idea for a There's probably a white paper out there on it already, but I'm thinking, oh, maybe we need another one. I think so.
1: I I definitely feel there's a need for a white paper in the Zero Trust space because, I mean, Zero Trust as a concept or a topic itself is still evolving, as a lot of people would say. Like We've done parts of it. And with now S and everything else kind of mm. being popular as well, mm-hmm. I'm not just throwing another acronym as, as security people <laughs> do. Just throw another acronym into <laughs> the conversation. Like, but you feel BOM also is affecting the community space in a lot of ways uh, in oh. terms of the in, in, yeah. I guess the investments that you yeah. would see. Because you know how you just mentioned about I guess workload identification or work- workload segmentation is becoming getting a lot of attention. Is S bringing a lot of attention to certain parts of these as well?
0: Yeah, the interesting thing about SBOMs and Software Bill of Materials for anybody who hasn't heard the acronym who's listening, but I think this audience will have heard. I was at CNCF Recon in Seattle in February, and Mm -hmm. SBOMs were a big topic of conversation. For me, it's fun because actually software build materials have been around for 15 or, or 20 more years. They were primarily a focus for folks who were trying to ensure that they weren't violating the GPL license, open source license. So folks would you know, use what's now called an SCA, a software composition analysis tool like Black Duck or Palomita. These names may not mean anything to some people to analyze their code, find the components, use that data to map to open source licenses so that they could be license compliant. So, and I actually had the pleasure of working on SPDX 1.0, which is a standard for producing SBOMs. So that was really fun. So what made them so prominent, right, was the solar winds hack. And if you think about how that's shown up in the Kube community, so Tekton, again, a Kubernetes native pipeline that you can deploy as code, you write your tasks, everything's stored as code, you can deploy it to any Kube cluster, you can redeploy it to a different Kube cluster. Well, then they recognize the need for attestation of the content moving through the pipeline as well as the, the tasks themselves, and enter Tekton Chains, which does that, and then enter SigStore, which makes it easier to add signing into that process. And Kubernetes community has adopted SigStore for signing all the code that they produce from the community itself. So there really has been this emphasis, this renewed emphasis on attestation and integrity of content and so when I think about my software build of materials that is if I am treating a container image as immutable I should get a software build material with that and I should know always what all those packages are and I should be able to if I'm checking in my running environment you know what is still in that container I should be notified if suddenly a new package shows up, right? That's a big deal. So it's kind of interesting because again, the concept has been present for a long time, but now it's being looked at in a whole new.
1: Yeah, and I think I didn't even realize it's been there for 10, 15 years. Cause I mean, we've been talking about SCA for some time, but that has always been the case.
0: Yeah, most people didn't think about it that way. And there's some new stuff happening, which I'm kind of excited about too, which is crypto bill of materials. Right. Well, right. Think about quantum computing. Mm -hmm. And as quantum computing becomes real, what are the post-quantum cryptographic algorithms that I'm going to care about? And do I need to know what crypto is present in my environment, my app, my infrastructure, in order to evaluate whether I'm using secure ciphers
1: or not. Ooh, yeah, that sounds like another conversation we need to have. I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe another whole episode on that as well. I do want to leave people with something that they can probably use as a foundation to kind of start mm-hmm. learning about these things if they have not, because a lot of people would just be curious. Mm-hmm. They might be seeing inklings of Kubernetes conversations coming in mm-hmm. into their day-to-day. Where do you recommend people should start from a... Because it's quite complex. You have the choice yeah. of going cloud-managed or Kubernetes anywhere or wherever. Like in your, I guess, experience of looking at all these landscapes that you're looking at at the moment, there's a lot more complexity because there's a whole question about, a, yes, we want to use open source, but who's going to be liable in case something goes wrong? Like that's kind of where people pay for support. Where do you think people should start learning this from? Because for A, people from sc- learning from scratch, I guess security people learning from scratch versus people who have done or split mm-hmm. between should I do cloud-based should I just go full cloud native or cloud kube native? Where do you recommend mm. them, they start?
0: Well, for learning about Kubernetes and people have different learning styles, there are some great books for on Kubernetes security. And I start with Kubernetes security. If you're a Linux geek or a Linux OS person, you can drill down on container security. Those are kind of two different layers. The container security is much more especially for Linux containers, right? About how do I manage C groups and secure computing profiles? It's a different level. Kube security is is much more about the Kubernetes components and managing those. There's some great books out there. O'Reilly has, has some of those. But also if you're a hands-on person, I mentioned it a little earlier, there's kubebyexample.com. Which has gives you a chance, you know, for free to do a bunch of hands on learning, including it has a security best practices track that you could leverage. And I will say also that the Kubernetes documentation, I I think, is pretty searchable and very useful. So definitely kubernetes.io has a lot of great resources as well. And then in terms of cloud versus, so you can have a private cloud, right? You can have Kubernetes deployed on-premises to create a cloud and, and, and you can use cloud provider. Again, if if you want to do some hands-on, try it out with with one of the cloud provider distros. Kube, by example, you don't have to spin up your own cluster, right? You've got that done for you, you can play around, but maybe after that, you're going to want to spin up your own cluster. And and take a look at the CIS benchmark, right? That's, if you're a security person, that'll give you some pretty low level hardening stuff that also, I think, provides some good context on how you secure a Kube environment.
1: So that's awesome advice. One yeah. final question. Where do you see the I guess, emerging pattern between a cloud-managed Kubernetes versus people still going, I can be cloud agnostic. I'm just going to make my little cluster and keep, you know, keep migrating that from Google, Microsoft, Apple, yeah. private cloud, wherever. Is there a pattern that you're seeing yeah. emerge?
0: So the folks who are going to do their own kube and move it around, I don't think that's going to last because it's really not cost effective, right? So either you're going to look for a Kubernetes distribution that you can use across those clouds, or you're going to wind up working with Kubernetes on one cloud or multiple clouds, but their own kube distro right? Because it kind of, it starts to become, the value is in the workloads. And why would, you know, so you want to spend your time building your apps rather than maintaining the platform. And there are a lot of people out there to help you maintain the platform.
1: Yep. Yep. hundred percent. And thank yeah. you for calling it out as well. A great answer. I a hundred percent agree as well to your point about the app is what we're trying to protect. We're not trying to build a new technology. We're just trying to make sure the app can go faster and still be secure as it's being deployed as well. So thank you so much for all the information as well. And... I definitely enjoyed the conversation, but maybe people who want to continue having the conversation about Kubernetes security and the evolution of it with yourself, where can they find you on the internet?
0: Mostly I'm on YouTube. i are a bunch of recordings on YouTube. I'm on LinkedIn. Apologies, folks. I don't do Twitter, So, but I'm definitely Is anyone doing LinkedIn. Twitter? I don't
1: know who does Twitter anymore. Cool. So uh, I would put your LinkedIn link onto the show notes as well, but thank you Great. so much for coming on awesome. the show. I really appreciate this and I'm looking forward to having these conversations again.
0: Great. Thank you Ashish. It was wonderful.
1: So Thank you.